breathing's energy. You get 15 times more energy if you're burning with oxygen. Benefits of nasal breathing are innumerable. You'll gain about 20% more oxygen breathing through your nose. Inhales and exhales through the left nostril are associated with a parasympathetic response. And the reason why we're able to upload more oxygen when we're breathing slowly is because we are increasing our carbon dioxide. These things don't take a few years to kick in. It happens immediately. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, this episode is a game changer. Just a game changer. I cannot wait for you guys to listen to it and let me know your thoughts. I say this over and over again in the episode, but I cannot express enough just how much of an effect reading James's book, Breath, had on me personally. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash breath. Those show notes will have a complete transcript, so definitely check that out. There will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers. Intermittent fasting plus real foods plus life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. Also, if you're enjoying the show, it would mean the absolute world. It helps so much more than you know. If you could write a brief iTunes review, it really just helps with getting the show out there, building credibility, helping others, and it would just seriously mean the world. Um, So thanks in advance for that. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with James Nestor. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. Oh my goodness, everybody take a breath. I am so excited about the conversation that I'm about to have. I read a book that came out this year and you guys know I read a lot of books and every now and then you read a book and it just has such a profound impact on your life. I didn't anticipate it having this much of an impact, but it really did. The things that I learned in it, they come to my mind almost daily. Well, I guess we'll get into what the topic was. I even had surgery based on reading this book. That's how much of an impact it had on me. And you guys have been dying to have an interview on this topic with this amazing, incredible author. I am here with James Nestor. He is the author of a new book called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. But you might have seen him. He's all over the place. Besides that, he's written for Outside, Scientific American, The Atlantic, The New York Times, many other publications. He also has another book called Deep, Freediving, Renegade Science, and What the Ocean Tells Us About Ourselves. So yes, really, really an incredible force. And I cannot thank you enough, James, for writing this book because you dived, no pun intended, dived so deep into a topic that I think is so profound and we just don't realize it because we're all breathing. <laughs> like, so I don't think we think about it very much. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for that intro. I'm afraid this is going to be terribly disappointing after that, that very huge intro you just gave me, but I'll do my best to, to keep up here. 
No, I'm sure you will. I'm I'm just so excited. Yeah. So what I said just a second ago, I read breath and I got surgery to fix my deviated septum. <laughs> so you've had a big impact on my life. But in any case, to start things off, would you like to tell listeners just a little bit about your own personal story and what brought you ultimately to write this book? Because you talk about it a lot in breath and you have some really interesting reasons for what brought you here. So would you like to tell listeners a little bit about that? Sure. It wasn't one thing in particular. It was a bunch of things that kept accumulating year after year after year. And I think the first thing was when I, this was like 10, 11 years ago, when I was suffering from chronic respiratory problems. I was eating right, was working out all the time. I was sleeping right. You know, I was, I thought I had everything tuned in, but I was having chronic bouts of bronchitis and mild pneumonia and some wheezing when I was working out. And my doctor suggested I check out a breathing class. I said, okay, I'm in San Francisco. So those things are a dime a dozen around here. So I just picked one randomly. And after doing an introductory course, I went back for a follow-up session and had this absolutely bizarre experience where I was just sitting cross-legged in this room breathing in this rhythmic pattern. And I just started sweating, unlike any sweat I've ever had. My hair was sopping wet. My t-shirt was wringing wet. I mean, it was absolutely bizarre. So I went back to my doctor. So, wow, I had this really crazy experience. What, what happened to me? You're a doctor, you know, and <laughs> she had no idea. She said, oh, you must have had a fever or the room was too hot. And none of those things were, were true. But as a science journalist, I didn't know what to do with that story because I wasn't going to write a memoir about breathing. That's not the sort of thing that, that I write about. But it wasn't until I met freedivers, and, and these are people who have managed to hone the art of breathing so well that they can hold their breath for eight or nine minutes at a time and dive down to 300 or 400 feet, like far below what scientists thought possible. I thought, my God, if you can do that with breathing, what else can you do? I just kept filing away stories until I had enough stories that I thought I could make an interesting book. I love it. It's so fascinating. Actually, just speaking what you're just talking about with the free divers. So something like that, because that's something you talk about in the book is how breath affects our bodies and our ability to hold our breath, the implications of all of that. So with the free divers, for example, is it the breath work that is creating their ability to do something like free diving or they do free diving and so they have to learn how to do breath work properly for it? Like, is there some magic in breathing or holding your breath? Absolutely. There is the only way that you can hold your breath for so long and dive so deep is to fully master breathing. You can't do it without having a true understanding of how your breath works within your body. So these people are I would consider them some of the best breathers on the planet. They have these extremely elastic rib cages. They have these enormous lungs. Lung capacity of some freedivers is double that of the average adult male. So, and these people weren't born this way. So they did this by a force of will and they showed me the real potential of breathing, where it could take us. So I learned about that while freediving, while learning to freedive, while hanging out with these people during Deep, my book Deep. But there were so many other weirdo stories on the side. They had told me about this guy who could breathe in this way and be shot up with E. coli and not suffer any of the symptoms of E. coli. 
because of the way in which he breathed, which sounded insane. And they told me about this 85-year-old who was able to heal his body of chronic lung inflammation, chronic lung problems, and then develop this almost superhuman skill to sit in ice and snow for hours at a time and not suffer from hypothermia. So as a reporter, you know, this really piqued my interest. But the first thing I did was, was to go to the labs to talk to scientists, to talk to experts. And what I found was so many of these crazy stories these free divers were telling me were absolutely true. And there was science to back it all up. Okay, the stuff that you actually just talked about, so the ice, was that related to the work with Wim Hof or is that different? I just had him on the show, so I was just wondering about that. Isn't he amazing? He's like the most inspiring person I think I've ever talked to literally in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, he'd be very dangerous if he were selling something else beyond breathing and that breathing was free because whatever, whenever he talks, I'm just like, I'm in it, Messiah. Whatever you say, brother, I'm there. So yeah, I just, we're going to be doing a bunch of interviews together. It's sort of this joint promo thing for his upcoming book, which is amazing as well. I was able to to read an early copy of it, but yeah, this was before I even heard about Wim. So I didn't know anything about freediving when I went out to write about them, which is the point why Outside Magazine wanted to send me out there. And they were telling me about Wim. They weren't mentioning him by name and that all of these other people, you know, Wim wasn't the first to do this. Maurice DeBard had been doing this since the 60s, had been doing all the things that Wim is doing now. So, and this technology of breathing has been around for, for 2000 years to heat your, your body up. And we know that it absolutely works. So, you know, Wim's very clear about this. He, he did not invent any of this. He took things that worked for him and put them together and got them out into the world. And I think that he's done more to bring awareness to the true potential of breathing than anybody else today, by far. And I love what he's doing. Do you do his breath work out of curiosity, his method? I do. It's interesting that it's it's known as the Wim Hof method when it's it's actually just Tumo, which has been around, you know, documented for so long. And again, he's very he's very clear about this. He's not trying to hide it like he invented this stuff. But I do it all the time. I, I did it last night with a big group. And absolutely, I've seen some huge benefits from it in blood pressure and clarity. I sleep better and it feels great while you're doing it. But it's so similar to Sudarshan Kriya and other pranayamas. And, and so there's a reason why they all work in the same way for the same people who need the same things. It's because they're doing the same thing. They're having you breathe really heavy, then they're having you breathe really light or hold your breath. Then you breathe really heavy again. So no matter what you call it, you know, this is, this is breath work. It's been around for a long time. The science is very clear that it can have a profound effect on our health. Yeah, I love it. You touched on so many things I want to dive deep into as well. I know when I first did the, the Wim Hof the first time, the thing that shocked me, which obviously this is nowhere near like deep diving, free diving, holding your breath. But the first time I did it, I was able to hold my breath like two and a half minutes. And I was like, what is happening? And that's when I was like, there's clearly something something going on here <laughs> with like the oxygen and the carbon dioxide and all of that. Actually stepping back a little bit, because we kind of jumped in pretty fast. A foundational question about all of this. What is breathing? You do talk in the book all about the evolution of why we started breathing, why we developed lungs. So what is going on there? Like from an evolutionary perspective, why did that happen? And how did it go awry today? 
The breathing's energy. That's that's all it really is. This is the way to fuel your cells. Your cells need glucose or they need ketones, as as you well know. And and they need oxygen. So some cells can work anaerobically and and that's fine, but it's a really inefficient way of burning fuel. Anaerobically means without oxygen, where they're just using glucose. But you get 15 times more energy if you're burning with oxygen, if you're burning aerobically. And this was why early life forms, you know, 3.75 billion years ago, didn't really do anything for a billion years because they were all anaerobic. And then new life forms that were aerobic sprouted up about two and a half billion years ago, and life just took off relatively quickly. Complex life took off because it had more energy. So everything was going great, and especially for our early human ancestors, until really a few hundred years ago. And this gets complicated. I'm doing a quick flyover of this stuff. But what, what essentially happened is the human jaw, the human mouth, the human face started growing smaller and smaller and smaller. And if you don't believe me, you can go to a mirror and look at your teeth. If you haven't had braces, there's a good chance your teeth are going to be crooked. Our ancestors' teeth were straight, okay? On back from 500 years ago to 5,000 years old and on back, they were all straight. Every animal in the wild has straight teeth, but modern humans have crooked teeth. And we have crooked teeth because our mouths have grown so small. When you have a mouth that's that small, you have a smaller airway. That's one of the main reasons so many of us suffer from chronic respiratory problems, sleep apnea, snoring, and other issues. Our mouths are so small. And this sounds outrageous. It sounded insane to me until I went out in the field and talked to the people and started looking at skulls. And anyone can do this online. Look at an ancient skull, look at a modern skull, and tell me what you see. So something like getting braces, so like fixing the teeth, does that fix anything? Or is our whole mouth so small that we can't really address anything by just straightening back up the teeth? So there is a huge revolution, a huge sea change happening in orthodontics right now. And it's very interesting to be right in the middle of this stuff right now. So the way that they used to straighten teeth about 100 years ago was they would expand the mouth. They would expand the upper palate because by having a larger mouth, you gave more room for teeth to grow in straight. And when you do that, you also open up the airways. So the very first functional orthodontics weren't even designed to straighten teeth. They were designed to open airways of these poor kids who had these clogged airways. And so then they started using them to straighten teeth and open airways. But then by the 1940s, production line orthodontics came out where they started extracting teeth. This became very common and craning the existing teeth into a mouth, making a small mouth smaller. Yes, it's straightened teeth, but there's ample evidence showing that it has also decreased our airway size. So starting off, we had smaller airways and then we were making them, I mean, typical humans, right? (laughs) Then by straightening our teeth for vanity, we were making our airways even smaller. So Right now, there's this huge change going on where they're going back to expanding mouths to not only straighten teeth, but to open airways. And it has a tremendous effect. People who had had sleep apnea, severe sleep apnea for years, snored for years, had allergies, asthma. 
they open their airways, guess what? They can breathe more freely and those problems go away. So again, I'm a journalist here. I have no skin in either game in, in pro braces or anti braces, but all you need to do is, is look at the science and all you need to do is understand the very simple physics, smaller airway, breathing issues, wider airway, easier breath. My mind is being blown. It was blown when I read the book and it's it's being blown again. So it sounds like it's a good thing if you got your wisdom teeth out then or, or no. Well, well, a lot of us don't really have a, a choice. So, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s and it was never if you were going to get braces. It's just when are you going to get braces? When are you going to get your wisdom teeth out? So I had my wisdom teeth out. I had extractions. I had braces. I had headgear. I had all of that crap for, you know, three years. I have straight teeth now. but. I've seen ample evidence and we've taken CAT scans and researchers have looked at it and said it definitely messed up my face and made my mouth too small. And it, it changes your profile as well. If you think about when a kid is developing, all of the, their jaws developing, their face is developing. If you start taking out teeth and making that mouth even smaller, their face is going to develop differently. So uh, you can look at the work by Dr. Kevin Boyd, look at the work by Dr. William Hang, look at the work by Dr. Mariana Evans. And this is very clear. And from what they have told me, that orthodontists have known about this for a long time. But, you know, it's been this sort of a dirty secret. And Dr. Michael Gelb told me, he said, this is the new tobacco. And, you know, in 10 years, we are not going to be doing any of what we did in the past. It is so injurious to our airways. This is crazy. Yeah, because I was thinking, take out the teeth, more room. But that's right. If you take it out when you're developing, then the mouth is naturally, like there's not going to be the teeth there, <laughs> keeping your mouth larger. You think about it, 100 years ago, were people getting their wisdom teeth removed? 500 years ago, were they getting their wisdom teeth removed? 5,000 years ago? You can look at these ancient skulls. And there's one, there's this incredible picture of this skull that's one of the oldest human skulls is like 300,000 years old homo sapien skulls perfectly straight teeth wisdom teeth aren't impacted that doesn't happen in the natural world like this these are modern problems and there's nothing normal about it it's just so widespread that we just figure oh yeah I'm gonna have my wisdom teeth out I'm gonna have extractions I'm gonna have braces but you know dolphins don't need braces chimpanzees don't need braces. Our ancestors didn't, didn't need braces either. And they had much larger airways and nasal apertures than we do. More questions about the mouth while we're in that area. You talked about the fact that we often lose bone in our mouth, but that we can actually regrow it. And you did? Yeah. So this was another thing that I learned from these orthodontists. And, and again, people are free to go check out any of those names I, I mentioned. They, they have a ton of studies, a ton of science out there. But and there's a book that was released by Stanford University Press by Dr. Paul Ehrlich, who is a professor there called Jaws, that gets into everything I'm talking about here. So if you want the real scientific view, if you consider what you're hearing me, you know, from what I'm telling you to be a little sketchy, check out the stuff coming out of Stanford, because it's, this is basically just a repeat of all that research that's already been done. So I had been told, as I'm sure you have, that we only lose bone after the age of about 30. And for women, this gets really bad because if a woman lives to be in her 70s or 80s, she has about the equivalent bone 
mass that she had when she was 15, like half of what she had at, at her optimum. Osteoporosis, increased risk of fractures. These, again, are things that are so common that we just sort of accept them. But there's an area in the body where we can actually grow new bone. And we can do this at virtually any age. And that's the front of our faces. Our front of our faces are, are relatively plastic. By that, I mean that they're constantly adjusting. And by chewing more and by expanding that upper palate, you can model new bone and it actually changes the way you look and it improves your ability to breathe. And so this sounded so insane, but I saw dozens and dozens of case studies of these people with CAT scans showing their airways before and after using this device that gently expands the upper part of the mouth, but most of the benefits come from chewing. Just chewing alone will do this. And I took a CAT scan a year before and exactly a year after, and I gained about 15 to 20% more space in my airway, which is an insane amount. And strangely, I added about five pennies worth of bone to my face <laughs> because the, the reason why our faces start drooping down why we get those, those real hollow eyes and all that is bone starts disappearing. So skin has nowhere to go but down. So you can actually reverse some of that, which is utterly bizarre to me. And you can do it without surgery. You can let your natural body do this. That is insane. For listeners in the show notes, I'll put a link. I actually just did an episode on osteoporosis with the Caltons, but they were talking about the ability to regrow bone you know, after a certain age. So that's really, really motivating. As far as actual breathing through the mouth, which apparently a lot of people are mouth breathers, and apparently this is a very, very bad thing. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, the mouth breathing versus nasal breathing? Yeah, so I had always learned that it didn't really matter the, the pathway through which you breathe air, right? You, we've got a mouth, why not use it? That's, that seemed reasonable to me, and I think through much of my youth, I was breathing through my mouth, and especially when I was doing athletics, and I thought that this was completely normal. But it turns out it's really not. I, again, live in San Francisco, so Stanford is, is pretty close to me, and I was able to talk several times with the chief of rhinology research down there, Dr. Jayakar Nayak, big nose guy. And he said that the benefits of nasal breathing are innumerable. So no one's really denying that. But so few of us do it. About 25 to 50% of the population chronically breathes through its mouth. And this is causing all kinds of damage. It can cause neurological problems. It can cause respiratory problems. I mean, it can put you in a state of stress where your body can't heal. And for kids who are breathing through their mouths, especially at night, if they have sleep apnea and snoring, which is becoming increasingly common now for kids, it actually stunts their growth. Because when you're in that sympathetic state, when there's cortisol in your bloodstream, you can't build bone. So this was just blowing me away. But the, the thing is, no one really knew how quickly that damage came on. Did it come on after a couple of years, after a decade, after a couple of months? No, no one knew. So that's where we, we thought we would do an informal study at Stanford to really test the difference between mouth breathing and nasal breathing. What's the difference between air coming in through your mouth versus your nose? Like, why is it magical when it comes in through your nose <laughs> and not through your mouth? So if you look at a cross-section of a human skull, and I've done this 
plenty of times through through CAT scans. It provides like a deli slicer view of your head. You see this enormous area, this huge amount of real estate in the front of your face. So it's equivalent to a space of about a billiard ball. And it's filled with all these sinus passages, other nasal structures. So when you breathe air through this structure, through this miraculous thing called the nose, you are pressurizing air, you are humidifying it, you are heating it, and you are conditioning it so that by the time it reaches the lungs, your lungs can absorb oxygen so much more easily. So you'll gain about 20% more oxygen breathing through your nose than equivalent breaths through the mouth. And if you think that's not going to make a difference to you day in, day out, it, it definitely is. When you breathe through the nose, you also tend to breathe lower. And at the bottom of the lungs is the largest perfusion of blood. That's where gas exchange is much more efficient. So again, there's not a lot of controversy about this. The science is very, very clear. And yet, from what I'd seen, nobody was talking about this <laughs> at all, except for the academics. And I thought that that was somewhat, somewhat criminal. This is something that anyone can do. The benefits are, can be tremendous. And yet here we are, a culture of mouth breathers. And what did you find in your informal study about how fast changes happened when switching between mouth versus nasal breathing? Well, we knew this wasn't going to be pleasant because I had known enough about the benefits of nasal breathing to know it wasn't going to be super fun. But, you know, at, at the same time, it wasn't really some crazy stunt we were doing. We were just lulling ourselves into a position so much of the population knew. The difference was we were just calculating it with just reams and reams of data. So I had thought, I was like, huh, maybe after a week, you know, I'll start feeling something, maybe after eight days. No, within about two hours, my blood pressure shot up to deep stage two hypertension, about 160 over, uh, or 170 over 100, which is severe. And I had never, ever seen my blood pressure that high in my whole life. And then I went to bed. We spent eight hours getting poked and prodded and blood work and PFTs and CAT scans at Stanford. I went to bed. I was exhausted. And for the first time in, in my memory, I was snoring that first night. So within a few hours of plugging the nose, I was snoring an hour and a half throughout the night. A few days later, I was snoring for four hours throughout the night. And I also had sleep apnea. So sleep apnea is different from snoring. When you literally are choking on yourself throughout... And it is so damaging to the body, to the brain, to everything. And the other subject in the study, Anders Olsen, suffered the exact same problems, but way worse than me. So these things don't take a few years to kick in. It happens immediately. And it's no coincidence that when allergy season comes around, sleep apnea and snoring go through the roof. And there's so many studies showing this. But it's a something else entirely when you feel this happen in your own body, when you feel these changes happening immediately and all of this damage being done right out of the gate. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual Biohacking Conference. 
May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like 100 brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. 
Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalonsCloset.com to sign up free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com for all of the clothes none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. Yeah, it's crazy. So like I said, read your book, decided to get my deviated septum fixed, which quick tangent question about deviated septums. Do most people have that and does addressing that typically help with their breathing or how common is it? Sure. And, and you know, I am not qualified to give anyone a prescription for, for anything. L- luckily, I and you know, well, I get about, you know, 50 emails a day of people asking for, for advice on their nasal surgery. I'm like, stop it. But luckily, I hung out with, with experts in this field for, for years and years. And I just gleaned from all of their wisdom. And what they told me is about 70% of the population has a septum that is clearly deviated to the naked eye. And I saw this in myself. I took a CAT scan of my head and I was a disaster. Nyack started laughing. And that's not something you want your, your ENT to do is to be laughing. <laughs> so I've had my nose broken like three times, four times. So I was a complete mess. But at the same time, right down the hall from, from Nyack was Dr. Ann Kearney, who had been a mouth breather, who had chronic nasal issues, who had been slated for surgery. And she's like, no, don't, don't go and get surgery. What you need to do first is try to allow your nose to heal, to open it up naturally. So she took me under her wing and showed me how to do it. And I've had zero problems since I've been following her, her advice. So this isn't to say, I want to be super clear here, that some people absolutely need surgical interventions. Absolutely. And I'm not against that at all. But by any means... Find a way of breathing through your nose. And if that helps you, that's that's great. But just because someone has some sort of disfigurement in their nasal cavities, which is the majority of us, doesn't mean you can't breathe through your nose. Doesn't mean you can't train yourself to do this and have those benefits. That's incredible. Yeah. I, so I will say, I was like, I'm going to do it. But then I was like, oh, with the recovery, I, I know that I'm going to be like 10 days not breathing through my nose. And I was like, oh man, all of this mouth breathing. And it was pretty bad, but that's okay. Because um, I can breathe now. But actually something that the ENT, when I met with him, 
And I don't know, I don't think you talked about this in your book at all, but he was saying that, and I should have looked up the specifics, but he was saying that our awareness of our nose being blocked, oftentimes it's not a physical blockage. Like there can be something in your nose where the sensing, I guess, I don't know, the signal to your brain is wrong and people think they have like a stuffed nose, but there's actually no obstruction. Have you heard of this? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, so our nasal passages are coated with erectile tissue. Oh, I I wanted to talk about this, so I'm glad we're going this direction. (laughs) So that erectile tissue functions the exact same way as the other erectile tissue you know where. So it engorges with blood, becomes stiff, and then it disengorges with blood and becomes flaccid. So our noses do this all day. One side will become engorged with blood, which will make it harder to breathe through that one nostril while the other side opens. And this shifts back and forth again and again. So this erectile tissue can be conditioned just like any other muscle. And the less we use our noses, the less we are going to be able to use our noses because they're out of shape. So one of the most effective things to start clearing your nose is to breathe through your nose all the time. And for a lot of people, they say, well, I'm constantly congested. How can I do that? There's many different ways. You can start, you can start slowly. You can use sprays. You can use Breathe Right strips. You can use mute inserts. There's all these hacks to get you over that hurdle. But Ann Kearney was telling me that when she first went on her own journey, she looked at CAT scans of people who had laryngectomies. So this is a hole drilled in their throat because of mouth cancer, or various reasons. And she found that between two months to two years, their noses were 100% blocked, 100% because they weren't being used. And a version of that blockage is happening throughout, I would consider, the majority of the population now because we're not using our noses a lot. And one of the quickest ways of overcoming that that I've found is to find a way of breathing through your nose all night when you sleep, all night, because that will just condition it and allow it to open. And I can talk about my own experience subjectively. Since I've been doing this and the CAT scans prove it, I've had such a huge difference of the ability to breathe through my nose. I've had one stuffed nose in the last two years when I came down with a cold. And that's it. Will my personal experience be the same as yours? No, it won't. But if you look at the science and if you look at how these structures in the nasal passages work, it makes perfect sense that the more you use something, the more it's going to be able to adjust and flex and benefit you. Well, I'm definitely excited to hear more about it. And I think I know what you're going to say. So I have a really crazy sleep routine, like... (laughs) Cause I am a self-proclaimed insomniac. So I do like all the things I do, like the blackout curtains, like the earplugs, the blue light blocking glasses, the red light. I mean, I have an EMF canopy. That's how crazy, like my pajamas are like EMF blocking. Like it's just everything, but I will tell people my routine and they'll be like, you're insane. But then when I throw in, <laughs> if I say mouth taping, then, <laughs> then they're just like, okay, I'm done. Was that what, <laughs> what helped you with the night breathing? Well, awareness was was the main thing that helped me. Once I learned about this, once I talked to Ann Kearney, once I knew she was at Stanford, right, one of one of the top research institutions in the world. Once I talked to Dr. Mark Berheny about this, who is a sleep specialist, he's a dentist, he's been prescribing sleep taping for his patients for decades, and he has so many case studies showing huge improvements. 
that this stuff isn't really crazy. We know the benefits of breathing through the nose. So what would, I mean, just imagine what would happen if, so two thirds of your life, you're trying to breathe through your nose. And then for the other third, you're just breathing through your mouth anyway. You have to figure out your sleep and you have to breathe through your nose when you're sleeping. So Ann Kearney at Stanford told me that putting a teeny piece of tape on my lips can help train the jaw closed. This is not a hostage situation. This is not duct tape. This, And that's what immediately people think of like Pulp Fiction or something. I'm like, no, don't go on YouTube, people. Don't, don't look up mouth taping on YouTube. You're going to go down a terrible hole of quackery. So listen to Ann Kearney. Listen to, to Dr. Mark. So this is a teeny piece of tape that easily comes off. And the point is not to hermetically seal your mouth shut. It's to just train your jaw shut. This had such an incredible impact on my sleep. And I know because I was calculating it every night with a pulse oximeter. And I know because I did this for, as part of the Stanford experiment. Just putting a little piece on my uh, tape on, on my mouth, changing the pathway through which I breathe air, zero snoring, from snoring four hours a night to zero zero sleep apnea. Anders Olsen, the other person in the study, had the exact same effect. And now Stanford is, is in the midst of booting up a 200-person study of, of sleep tape and sleep apnea and snoring. So this is legit stuff. And I don't think a lot of people are arguing with it. It sounds insane. But, but if you look at the real pros in the field and you listen to them, and I put some of their interviews up on, on my website just to prove to people that this wasn't quackery. The, the science is very clear. I'll put links in the show notes <laughs> to some, some things you can check out so you don't have to Google like erectile tissue mouth taping on YouTube and see, see what comes up with that. Do not Google images erectile tissue for everyone. The bad, bad idea. Just a disclaimer there. One more thing about the nose that I found really fascinating was you talked about the difference between the left and right nostril and how one is tied to our parasympathetic system and one is tied to the sympathetic system. So, well, first of all, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. And does that mean that we could possibly hack that? Like if you only breathe through one side of your nostril, would you be activating a different part of your brain potentially? Yes, you would. And this is another thing that's been widely studied. There are dozens and dozens of studies on this. So there's a reason why in yoga classes, they have you do your alternate nostril breathing. And it's called Nadi Shodana. I've, I've heard that pronounced in various ways. I'm sure I'm butchering it right there. But what this is, is it's just hacking into this. It's taking a finger and a thumb and closing one nostril and breathing in through another nostril and then exhaling through the other nostril. And there's a zillion different ways to do this. But they all circle around the same theme. And that inhales and exhales through the left nostril are associated with a parasympathetic response. What I mean by that is it helps to relax you. Your blood pressure is going to go down. It cools you. Your heart rate's going to go down. And the left nostril, just like the eyes, are more closely connected with the right side of the brain. And the right side of the brain is considered more of the creative side right? So inhaling through the right nostril, I know there's a lot of right-left stuff going on here. It gets confusing, but inhaling through the opposite nostril, that right nostril, will activate the body. Blood pressure increases, increases heat. It will stimulate the left, quote-unquote, logical side 
of the brain. So there's been various EEG studies showing this. There's been various studies where they've taken subjects, put sensors all over themselves. And what's interesting is it's not a real subtle effect. It's pronounced and it's measurable. And it's interesting to me that, you know, yogis have been doing this for well over a thousand years. They've known that this is how effective this is. And it's just fascinating that modern science is just kind of catching up to what these people have known for so long. Have you ever tried or have they ever studied, like if you plugged up one side of your nose and only breathed through, like all day, through one side? University of California, San Diego, some researchers were studying this woman with severe schizophrenia. She was having hallucinations all the time. And they noticed that she was predominantly left nostril breathing. There was something wrong with her right nostril. So they hypothesized that because she was breathing through this left nostril all the time, she was just stimulating the creative side of our of her brain. So, you know, the, the left side balances the right creative. You don't want to be creative all the time. You want to be able to like see a car coming for you. <laughs> you want to be able to survive in the wilderness. That's what the left side of the brain helps to do. So they had her adjust her breathing to have it more balanced, and she suffered significantly fewer hallucinations. And, you know, I wouldn't have really believed this if it didn't come out of UCSD and if the people studying this weren't, weren't experts in the field. But it just shows you how powerful these, these things can be. I would not suggest anyone put silicone in the right nostril and try to trip out. You know, that's, that's a bad thing. What you want to be throughout the day is balanced, and that's what the nostrils help, help you do. Dip breathing through different nostrils and letting your body naturally do that. So fascinating. I'm glad you said that about the balance because I mean, I have a tendency to go extreme because literally I read that and I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to only breathe through like one nostril during the day and one at night and I'm going to hack this. You know, the sympathetic system just doesn't get too much love. Everyone's like, oh, you need to be parasympathetic all the time. You need to. No, our bodies need, need a proper balance of it. What they don't want is to have this very low-grade stress, which leads to inflammation, which leads to the vast majority of modern diseases right now. So, so you want to have that sympathetic nervous system balanced with the parasympathetic. So right now, if you take your hand and place it over your heart, you can inhale to a count of about five, and then exhale to a count of about eight or ten. And do that same thing. You're going to notice when you inhale, your heart rate speeds up. You're going to notice when you exhale, your heart rate slows down. So when you're inhaling, that's associated with a sympathetic response. So if you inhale more than you're exhaling, you're going to jack your sympathetic nervous system. If you exhale longer than you're inhaling, then you're going to relax yourself. And there are a zillion different methods to do this, but so much of pranayama revolves around that, around that theme of inhaling, extending inhales, extending exhales. Yeah, it really is profound. And it's like you've said a lot throughout this podcast that it's a really significant effect that you really, really experience. And I think a lot of people just don't realize until they start doing it. Should we be breathing more? Should we be breathing less? How should we be breathing? So these are different tools in the toolbox. And the reason why we're able to upload more oxygen when we're breathing slowly is because we are increasing our carbon dioxide. So there is a yin and yang relationship between those two things. 
You have to have a healthy balance of those two gases in order for them to work. CO2 also gets this really bad rap because people say, oh, there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. It's causing acidity in the oceans. It's causing climate change. All 100% correct. And if you think otherwise, you are totally wrong. Just look at the science. It's very clear. But in our bodies, many of us are deficient in CO2. And we become deficient in CO2 when we do this. When we are breathing over our metabolic needs. And when we're deficient in CO2, it makes it harder for us to offload oxygen. So our bodies are constantly compensating. They can do that. Our bodies are so smart. They can compensate for such a long time. They do a wonderful job of doing that. But after a while, they'll start to wear down unless we're balanced. So it's that balance of CO2 and O2. So that's how we should be through the vast majority of the time where things get very confusing. And trust me, I was extremely confused about this as well when I was researching it. There's people saying slow, deep, light breathing. This is the way we should always be breathing. And then you've got Wim Hof. And then you've got pranayama, and then you've got Sudarshan Kriya, which show marked benefits of breathing, <laughs> breathing way too fast, sometimes breathing out of your mouth. I said, how can these two things be so different and also have different benefits? The difference is those very intensive breathing practices are conscious and they are temporary. So Wim Hof method is about 15, 20 minutes. The rest of the time that you're not doing that, and talk to Wim about this, I, I already did this, he says he's breathing very slowly through his nose. It's the thing is people only see him huffing and puffing away with his mouth open. But for the other 23 and a half hours of the day, he's breathing slow and properly. So hacking these different systems by breathing too much and purposely stressing your body out, these have innumerable benefits. But it doesn't have to be exclusive. It doesn't have to be all slow breathing or all heavy breathing. These different things have different functions and different uses for different people. Yeah. And for listeners, that's why you have got to get breath. Like you've got to just get it right now <laughs> because there's no way we could even remotely touch on everything. And it's all in the book, like deep dive into all the different breathing types. And yeah, it's crazy how everything can affect things. I really am fascinated, though, by the carbon dioxide. One of the things that you talk about in the book is how it's like actually the primary hormone of the body, and it's the only thing that actually touches every single tissue and organ. Do our bodies even sense oxygen, or is all of the sensors like about the carbon dioxide? So you just mentioned a quote, and I want to attribute it properly. That was from Yandel Henderson, who was at Yale for about 40 years, 100 years ago. He was discovering all the benefits of carbon dioxide. And it's interesting that we've known this for so long, and yet it's been almost entirely ignored. And again, this wasn't some guy working in a, in a garage in, in Montana. He was at Yale, you know, one of the top research institutions. So, you know, with, with CO2, it's, it, it comes down to that balance. It comes down to allowing your body to function at its most efficient state. So it's, you know, there's ways of measuring this with a capnometer, there's ways of measuring your O2, but but it really comes down to not trying to be too far in one state or too far in the other. CO2, we know that oxygen can't do its thing without CO2. 
Okay, we cannot get oxygen without the presence of CO2. And they used to do these studies, I don't know why they, they don't do them today too often, where people with gangrene or other circulation problems, they would expose them to more CO2 because in those areas, having more CO2 there would bring more oxygen. And they used to inject them with CO2. And that's one of the reasons why thermal baths are so effective for eczema and other circulatory issues is because they increase your CO2, which is increase, increases your oxygenation. So again, this, we've known this stuff for the science. We've known even the science for over 100 years. And yet you talk to most people, even people in the medical community, and they still call CO2 a waste gas, which is insane to me. So for the carbon dioxide, some of the practices for that, is that what bag breathing is? Yeah. You know, I talked to a few researchers about that. And they suggest not doing that. And the reason is it can be effective for people suffering from panic attacks and anxiety attacks, but it became so well known and overused that they started giving it to people who were suffering from heart attacks. Some people not, not knowing better did that and, and killed these people because when you're suffering a heart attack, you really need to breathe. So what they're suggesting is just use, you don't need a paper bag to breathe slowly. You can use your natural body. You can purse your lips. You can force yourself to breathe more slowly. Doing that is not only more safe, but it's just as effective. You can increase your CO2 levels by doing this, holding your breath or breathing very slowly, breathing out of your nose, which slows down your breath. Okay, listeners, so don't fear. Don't fear the carbon dioxide. Actually, speaking of fear and carbon dioxide, one of the most shocking, like mind-blowing things that I read in your book had to do with fear and carbon dioxide and phobias. And it really, really struck home with me because I don't know if you have any phobias, James, <laughs> but I have claustrophobia. That's the only one I like actually have. I've done like the, we fill out the surveys of like, what are you actually scared of? And apparently there are two types of claustrophobia, but one of them is actually not claustrophobia. It's actually the fear of suffocation. And that's what I had like completely, but apparently it's not unique to me. <laughs> I learned that we all potentially have this inherent fear of suffocation and it's fascinating. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about our fear of, of suffocation and how it relates to carbon dioxide and the potential implications of that. Sure. And man, you would not have had a good time 60 feet below the streets of Paris crawling through little tunnels for, for four hours looking for ancient skulls. Oh, in the catacombs? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you, I'm sure that, that wasn't your your favorite passage in the book. So so back back to work here. So it turns out that people who suffer from anxiety and asthma and panic all traditionally breathe too much. So their threshold of CO2 is very low. And as you said earlier, it's not a lack of oxygen that triggers the need to breathe. It is an increase of carbon dioxide. So right now, if you exhale and hold your breath, after about 10 or 20 seconds, you're going to feel that nagging need to breathe. That's not because you have low O2, because you have more CO2, and it's those chemoreceptors that are sensing CO2 that trigger the need to breathe. So people with asthma, with panic, with anxieties, 
They are so scared of losing their ability to breathe because they associate that with an attack. So they become conditioned to breathe too much. They can become conditioned to breathe through their mouths as well. So it's very typical breathing for someone with, with panic or, or fear-based disorders. So what they've found, and again, they've known this for over a hundred years, that by increasing the tolerance of CO2 for people with anxieties, for people with panic, for people with asthma, they are able to calm themselves down and overcome so many of those chronic attacks by controlling their breathing. So this is hard to do right off the top when you ask someone with anxiety to hold their breath. They, they last about three seconds and they say, <laughs> and that can lead to an attack right there. But the science is very clear that by conditioning these people not to breathe more when they get nervous, but to breathe less, they can send signals back up to their brain to calm themselves. So they can actually change how their brains are functioning. They can change the emotional centers of the brain by breathing, and they can overcome those attacks. And there's various studies on this. Justin Feinstein at the Laureate Institute of Brain Research is now studying giving carbon dioxide to people with severe panic problems. And the word on the street is it's working amazingly. But the reason, <laughs> the reason he's doing this is because he found studies from 40 years ago, from 60 years ago, from 100 years ago, where researchers were doing this and had a profound effect. And that research, for one reason or another, was just buried and forgotten about. And again, fascinating to see it coming back, which is why I named the, the book The New Science of a Lost Art, because we've known this stuff for so long. It's just we haven't really paid attention to it. That was one of the things I wrote down from the book. I found it really haunting because I'm paraphrasing, but you basically talked about how there was all this research, like you just said, on CO2 and then something, I'm paraphrasing, but you said like the research disappeared. We turned to pills and steroids and no one disproved it. Like nobody disproved that that other stuff wasn't working, which is just really haunting concept. Yeah. And what's funny is I was not looking for those stories, right? I was looking at everything. And I've never written about medicine before. This is not my jam, which is why this book was such a nightmare to wrangle together. Because when you're talking about breathing, you're basically talking about something that affects from the electrons in the electron transport chain to the cells, to the hemoglobin, to the lungs, to the body. So you're talking about the entire body. I was lucky enough that my father-in-law is a pulmonologist. My brother-in-law is an ER doctor. So they really helped me out. They put me into a serious boot camp with this stuff and read every single word of this, this book, make sure I got it right. But, you know, finding these stories and finding the same arc to every story, Carl Stahl, this guy who had a massive effect for people with emphysema, worked for 10 years in VA hospitals, taught them how to breathe. The minute he left the VA hospitals, his therapy was completely discarded. They put these people back on antibiotics and oxygen. So no one ever disproved the CO2 therapy of Yendel Henderson at, at Yale or Joseph Wolpe or Daniel Klein. I mean, on and on and on. But it was just completely spooky. I thought I was kind of going out of my, my mind. I was like, is it just me or is something really fishy going on here? I kept having to check myself. I'm not a conspiracy conspiracy theorists. I don't stand in front of government buildings with 
sandwich boards, you know, that's not my thing. But what I had found had been confirmed by almost every doctor and every expert in the medical field. These are people at the top universities. They said, it's not really a conspiracy theory. It's just, there's not a way of really making money from breathing. And that is one of the main reasons why there hasn't been a lot of interest in it. And they were very clear. These are their words and not mine. There, there's like, there's not a big impetus to, to study this stuff, uh, which I thought was one of the most awful and tragic and disgusting things I've, I've heard to purposely not help people out because someone can't make money from it, I think is pretty grotesque. But luckily now we have different ways of disseminating information. We have some real experts in the field coming out and showing the science is, is completely solid, showing people how to take control of their health which is exactly what you've done, which is exactly you know what I write about, which is exactly why so many people are tuned into to healthy foods right now. If you think of, of what was considered healthy food in the 70s and 80s, it was absolute garbage that we knew was garbage. We've known this food, this high sugar, high carb food has been bad for us for over 100 years. But that science is, was just battered down until around 15, 20 years ago. And now you see this revolution going on with, with nutrition. And I think the same revolution is going to be coming into different areas of health. You really got me on my soapbox there. I apologize about that, but, but it's a little crazy. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. 
I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality, they're low EMF, and what I really love is they have a solo unit, that's what I have, and it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving, it's just really an amazing investment, and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, Two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near infrared light devices as well. 
so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. To your point of what you just said, I was I was gonna say it sounds like kind of like intermittent fasting, you know, like a lost art of fasting. And I'm actually hopeful because you could argue that there's not much money to be made from fasting, but there's an explosion now, I think, of science and research into it. So maybe maybe that can happen with breathing. These things come in waves, right? And if you look at how science progresses. And Thomas Kuhn wrote about this in the 60s. He said that these big revolutions in science, they aren't dictated by the amount of data that's available. They're dictated when public opinion switches, when politics switch. So, which is so scary. I had always thought that science was moving forward depending on what data was there. I I mean, look at all the data on climate science now. It's irrefutable. Still, we're polluting more than than we ever have. So the inspiring thing behind all this, and even you look at keto, we've known that ketogenic diets for epilepsy have been extremely effective for over 100 years. And yet, how have epileptics been treated for the past 100 years (laughs) with tranquilizers, which haven't really worked too well? But now this, this stuff, it's the lost art of nutrition. It's the lost art of fasting. And I think it's fascinating and, and really inspiring, too, that there are different ways for people to get information and that they can really take control of so many aspects of their life that they felt rather helpless in. They can do that by letting their natural bodies just function normally and be balanced. With you know studies on diet and food, there's at least the avenue of the economics of (laughs) creating food products. Do you think there is a way that there would be like an economical incentive for breathing techniques and then, you know, connected to research? Well, it's hard in a private healthcare system. It's much easier in a public healthcare system where doctors are, they are encouraged to keep people healthy. And again, I know I sound like a big crank here, but what I'm telling you is coming from my, my father-in-law, who was a CEO and a vice president of a huge healthcare management organization here and has been a pulmonologist for 40 years. So this stuff isn't really a secret, but, but what's the incentive? You know, It's so sad to me, and I don't want to point any fingers either. It's so sad to me that doctors have to see 15 patients in an hour. They don't have time to teach them about breathing. These people have 
have real issues, real problems, and pills work. Listen, they, they work wonderfully, but they don't do anything for the core issue. And, and the fact of the matter is they, they just don't have bandwidth to do this. So this work has fallen on other people now, breathing therapists and, and other people. And I see, you know, I've been in this, the breathing world, the breathing research world for, for a number of years. And I see a huge change coming right now because this stuff is measurable. It works. The science is clear. It's been around for so long. And the best part, it's free. So, so what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Oh, you're going to feel better for a few minutes of adopting some healthy breathing habits. Nothing wrong with that. I know. It's so wonderful. I literally walked away from your book and I was like, I'm going to change my life with breathing. Like, I, like, except actually, I think I called my mom. I was like, I'm breathing my way back to, <laughs> to help. Well, I want to be very clear, you know, breathing. And I, I made this clear at the end of the book. For people with huge, chronic, longstanding problems, you know, with, with chronic obesity or whatever, you can't breathe away weight. You can't breathe your way out of cancer. You can't breathe. The, the best benefit of breathing is to use this as preventative maintenance. So what's the quickest way of decreasing inflammation in your body? Diet really helps. Exercise helps. But what's an even quicker way? Take control of your breathing. And when you breathe slowly, you enter that parasympathetic state, which decreases inflammation. So again, this isn't revolutionary stuff. It's We've known it for so long, but I view breathing as, as a part of healthy living, you know, not the sole thing. You can't drive down a bunch of Big Macs and then breathe in a certain way and think you're going to be healthy. You know, you got to eat right. You need to exercise reasonably and you need to breathe right. And, and those three things, I, I think it's not that hard to do. But if you do it, I mean, the, the results can, can be sudden and profound. I cannot agree more. And that was one of the things I really loved about the conclusion of the book was that was like made very clear. And I thought it was, yeah, it was <laughs> the perfect approach. I thought I just have to ask you though about, cause the, the CO2 and the suffocation, all of that. So you actually did the, the experiments where they gave you CO2. When I read that, I was like, okay. Cause like I said, my, my fear of suffocation, even if we all have it on some like deep level, I mean, it's very present for me. So when I read that, I was like, I can't, <laughs> like I can't even because it makes you feel for listeners apparently it makes you feel like even though you, you have oxygen you feel like you can't breathe so I, I've been lucky enough to I'm, I'm I've never well this what I'm about to tell you is not gonna not gonna improve that so you can just close close your ears I'll wave my hand when when I'm done I'll make it quick too so this this therapy of giving people co2 have anxiety and panic what they found is it's effective because if you tell these people to go home and breathe slowly, a lot of them aren't going to do it. They're going to feel uncomfortable and they, or they just can't do it. But the idea here is that if you give them this huge lungful of CO2, it can help reset those chemoreceptors. It can help reset their body. So it's almost like extreme weightlifting, right? You can lift some weights and you can build this muscle, and every time you do it after that, that muscle is going to get going to get bigger. So I don't know if that's the best analogy, but some something like that. It's it's a, a baptism by fire. So again, they've they've shown for for about a hundred years that this has been really effective, but but no one has really been been experimenting with it lately, or very few people. So Justin Feinstein got an NIH grant to do this with with panic sufferers, and what he does is. He has them come into this, 
this little lab and he puts a gas a mask up to their face and they take in about 15% CO2. So in the air there's about what 420 parts per million of CO2. This is, you know, a significant increase <laughs> of the amount of CO2 that that they're getting. And again, from what I've heard is it's been extremely effective. These people are just chilled out because they're able to breathe normally. So since I hadn't had panic, he's like, well, what if we double it? I said, okay, I'm game for that. And I was thinking all the breath holding I've been doing, I'm a free diver. So I'm used to holding my breath for minutes at a time. I was thinking that I wasn't going to feel too much from this, but oh boy, it, it completely hammered me. And I felt what it was like to have a panic attack. And what was even more bizarre is I had all of the readouts of what was happening in my body in front of me on this computer screen. So I could see my oxygen levels never wavered. My CO2 levels went. So there was never any, any threat to my body. What was happening is we were just hacking into these chemoreceptors. And it was awful. It was, I, I fully sympathize with anyone who has ever had any of these issues. I mean, I did before, but it's something altogether different when you experience it yourself. And, and so, yeah, I did that in the, in the name of science, in the name of, of journalism, to be able to talk about it from the inside. Don't think I'll be doing that again, but, you know, nice, nice experience to have. I'm, I'm in awe. I just can't. So, like, when you were done, did you feel really, really zen? Like, did it have an effect? I know you said you didn't really have panic or anything before. I felt really chill. <laughs> and we were looking at my heart rate variability. And then we even did after that, we waited about a half an hour. And we did some crazy experiments after that, which did not make it into the book, which might make it into the new edition. We didn't have space for this in the book where I combined Wim Hof style breathing Sudarshan Kriya with the CO2 and had probably the most bizarre experiences I've ever had in my, in my entire life, just shifting the pH from those two extremes. So Feinstein said, he's like, what probably happened is it was so extreme that the chemo receptors might've shut off and might've given your, your body the signal that, that you were dying. This is hypothetical. This is totally hypothetical. Not even hypothetical. It's just a thought because I experienced something that was, was so profound. I don't know if you've ever seen Jill Bolte-Taylor's TED Talk about she's a neuroscientist that the left analytical side of her brain, she suffered an aneurysm there and her, the left side shut down. So she was only able to view the world with her right side and how beautiful it was. Because you have nothing, no sense of time, no sense of fear. Just everything was beautiful. That, that TED Talk, it, I mean, it'll bring you to tears. It, it's just we're so left side dominant now that we're not able to, to see the wonder of the universe. But I believe that I got a sliver of that in these experiments. And it, it really affected me pretty deeply. Wow. For listeners, I'll put a link to that TED talk in the show notes. Yeah. One of my side obsessions is like the research on left versus right brain implications and, and like the split brain patient studies. They blew my mind. I think one of the most probably mind blowing thing I ever read was the split brain patient studies where they would like show patients, they would like show them objects and then they would make it so only one part of their brain could see it for some reason. And the patients who, cause like, since I think the left part of our brain controls language. So like 
patients would like see things that their left brain didn't actually see. And they would just make up stories like for why they saw it or how they'd seen it and make up memories and think it was all real. And it wasn't real. And after that, I was like, I know nothing. Like, I know nothing. <laughs> My brain could just be making up a story about everything. But, you know, we've, I think we've, we've adopted to breathe too much, to be in sympathetic stress, to be left side dominant, because it's really competitive in the world now, even though it's, it's ironic that, you know, modern humans, we have shelter, we have food, we have warmth, we have all of these creature comforts, but we've still managed to find a way of chronically stressing ourselves out, which is bizarre from an evolutionary standpoint. If you have all these things, you should be relaxed, but the opposite is happening. So again, I think that recognizing this and taking control of that in, in so many ways can help rebalance your brain, rebalance your body, and, and ground you back into the, the wonderment of the, of the earth and being here. I was actually thinking that when you were talking about the experiment with the CO2, because I was thinking like that you could see on the thing that you had CO2 and oxygen, like it was okay. <laughs> you know, like everything was okay, but clearly your experience was not at all that, you know, these anxiety, this fear, this stress, we can't talk ourselves out of it and we can't rationalize ourselves out of it. You know, there has to be something, I think for a lot of people, something a lot deeper and seems like breathing is a nice step in that direction, if not the path to take for a lot of people. Yeah. And just one, one other quick, quick thing I want to mention about that is they used to give CO2 to schizophrenics and because they believe that it, because CO2 is a massive vasodilator, it helped open up these dormant areas of their brains that were contributing to their schizophrenia. And this was back in the twenties and thirties. And these people would, would take this huge inhale of CO2 and people who had been mute, who had been completely out of it for years, came to, they sat up straight, and they started having these completely lucid and coherent conversations with their therapist. And a half an hour later, when the CO2 wore off, they collapsed down again, and they become mute, and they wouldn't talk to anybody. So it just shows you that the potential of not just CO2, not just this gas, but by bringing the body back into balance and by breathing differently, you can have this profound effect on our ability to think, even when you're chronically sick. And those studies are freely available on PubMed, the NIH, and they're, they're really emotional that these people were, were able to recover. And then by the 50s, 60s came around, they just gave them tranquilizers. So tranquilizers didn't cause you know, any of these, these rash problems or these reactions, because some people really had panic attacks, but they didn't help them either beyond just numbing them. And this is how these people are, are still treated today. So I'm not an expert in this field, but if, if you look at the science and if, if you look at what's been done in the past and how effective it was, I, th I think, especially someone who's been suffering from these things for so many years, why not give it a try? <laughs> you know, why not try to fix the core problem and to help these people in a real way? Yeah, that's so incredible. Yeah, that was one thing I written down was that catatonic people were reawakened from this. Wow. Well, I want to be really respectful of your time. This has been so incredible. I have like a million other thousand questions I could ask you, but I will refer listeners 
to your book, because like I said, it's all in there. Some practical takeaways for listeners. So, oh, actually I did want to throw out a little fun fact that I wrote down that I think was one of the most like mind-blowing facts from the book for me was you talked about how in the Framingham Heart Study, and I feel like nobody talks about this, you said that the longest predictor of longevity wasn't, I can't even say it, <laughs> wasn't, long, wasn't genetics, it was lung capacity. Nobody talks about that. Respiratory health, that's the one. And if you have larger lungs, you're going to live longer. So one, one thing that didn't make it in the book as well is even people who had lung transplants, those who were transplanted with larger lungs lived way longer than those with smaller lungs. The great thing about this, people, you can affect your lung size. You can affect your lung capacity throughout your life. You can do this by breathing properly, by breathing deeply and softly. Wow. Nobody talks about that. So thank you for talking about that. So if a listener is listening right now and they're like, okay, I want to breathe, um, <laughs> besides reading your book, how should they breathe like right now at this moment? <laughs> breathe through your nose. I'm sure I drilled that one down to and people are sick of hearing it, but breathe through your nose, breathe slowly, breathe deeply and breathe light. Deep doesn't mean don't go out and walk around. <sighs> I'm going to expand my lung capacity. No. Breathe at a, at a rate of about six breaths per minute to calm yourself down and through the rest of the day, maybe 10 or 11 breaths per minute. But you want to breathe very lightly and you want to breathe through your nose and you want to breathe in a calm way. So that's the cliff note version. If you know I, what I get into the, the how of this is very easy, right? And I mentioned that in the book. To me, I thought was the much more interesting story was the, well, why do you want to breathe this way? What does it do to your body? Where does it come from? So that, that's what I focused on. Well, you definitely, definitely did that. Like I said, I know it's not, it's not a cure-all, but I definitely walked away from it being like, I'm doing this. <laughs> this is the thing. So thank you. I am just so grateful for what you're doing. So grateful for your work. That brings me to the last question that I ask every single guest on this podcast. And it's just because I have started to realize more and more just how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? I would say breath, but that's way too cheesy. I'm very grateful that I have the ability to live so close to the ocean because that is where I, my real refuge in these difficult times. And if I'm lucky enough, I'll be able to sneak out in there and um, I won't be sneaking out to the ocean, be sneaking within it in about five hours when I'm free from work. Awesome. 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 Well, thank you again. This has been so incredible. Like I said, I'm so grateful for everything that you're doing. Listeners, get this book. It is life-changing. It's profound. All the science is in there. There's exercises at the end that you can do, which you're not supposed to do while driving, but I was doing them while driving. Only some of them, only only the heavy breathing ones. Don't don't do those. The rest of them, yeah, do them while driving for sure. No, but they're really they're really incredible and really profound and I cannot recommend it enough. Any other links you'd like to put out there? How can people best follow your work? My website mrjamesnester.com that's MR because some other bozo took James Nestor so I had to put the MR there. All of the studies all of are listed on the website for free. There are exercises from doctors at, at Harvard, doctors at Stanford, all on the website as well. And it's a portal to some of the other information in the book. I'm also trying to get better at this Instagram thing. I'm a bit of a dinosaur, but I'm posting expert interviews 
with breathing therapists, breathing researchers up on my Instagram as well. And that my handle is Mr. James Nestor. Awesome. I'm probably already following you, but if not, I will follow you right now. And for listeners, again, those links will all be in the show notes. You said there's an updated version of the book coming out? Since the book came out about three months ago, I've found so much other amazing information, just little bits that I'll be putting out for the paperback version, which will be out in about a year. So and I'm going to probably include the the other research, the Justin Feinstein thing and, and that kind of stuff. I, I like to freshen up the paperback, add a new forward, but that won't be happening for a long time. And they're just little little bits, most of which are, are on the uh, Instagram. And I see how old I am. I called it the Instagram. That's something my that's something my mom would have done. The television, the ex, the Instagram, the Facebook, <laughs> the podcast. Well, this is the podcast. Last question. Do you have any other books in the works? Oh, God. Yeah. It'll be a secret between us and, and, and your your minions of, of listeners. Yes, I have an idea. But the idea of sitting down and writing a new book right now makes me a little queasy. But it is fomenting in my head. I am so excited to get back in the field and to start digging up some new weird stuff. So give me a few years. Things should be uh, underway by then. Awesome. Yeah. When I wrote my book, I was like, never again. It's been three years and now I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe. Yeah. You've got the, the publishing PTSD. I think a lot of people think like we just sit around with quill pens and monocles and at cafes, but, but writing books, man, it is a freaking grind. So I know never again, but maybe again. (laughs) So clearly again, you did it twice, right? Twice already. Yeah, twice, and I'll be doing it a, a lot more than that in the in the future, I'm sure. You're my inspiration. Well, thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much, James. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got this.